Thanks for joining me today. I'm Todd Allen, and this is Insurrection, Episode 8, Stars Falling from Dark Skies, the final episode of the first season. This is an original audio fiction series written and performed by me. Don't miss the companion podcast on Wednesdays, where Will, Carrie, and Lauren join me to dive into this week's episode. The podcast is really designed to complement the story, and we love experiencing the story together with all of you. As we get into this final episode of the first season, Beth and Gray are hiding out in Michigan's Upper Peninsula trying to avoid the all-seeing eye of the deep state. Jake is with Group Alamo while Eli and company prepare for their largest attack yet. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Todd's World 2023. I'm most active on Twitter. I'm also on Truth Social at The Todd Allen Show. You can find clips of the show and share them with your friends. Also, check out The Todd Allen Show and look for more of my writing at Todd's World on Substack. And I always look forward to hearing from you guys. Todd'sWorld.net is the new merchandise store. We have the coolest insurrection merch and a collection of original Trump 2024 gear. That's also a great way to share the show with your friends and family. There's a big link front and center to the show on the main page. As we come to the end of the first season, I want to thank all of you for your support for this new style of storytelling. The first season has been a fantastic ride, and I can't wait for the second season. I plan on releasing the paperback of the first season of Insurrection in a few weeks if you want to have a hard copy of the story, too. We are going to take three weeks off, and then the first season of Witness, another original audio story, will begin on May 15th. Following the conclusion of Witness, we'll take another couple weeks off, then come back with the second season of Insurrection. The response to insurrection has been phenomenal, and I hope all of you join me for Witness, which is another great story that I really believe you're going to enjoy as much as insurrection. As I always like to remind people, this is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, events, even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The product of the author's daring imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental and fictional, and we would never encourage or promote violence. Unless you're defending yourself, your home, or your country from the violence of tyranny. Thanks again for joining me for the final episode of this first season of Insurrection.
Episode 8, Falling Stars and Dark Skies. The truck rolled slowly down the unimproved seasonal road, with the sun dipping behind the hills to the west, and the last hour of daylight slowly fading away. The large semi with its shipping container trailer wound through the trees carefully. The dirt road had washed out in many places from heavy seasonal storms, slowing their drive more than they had anticipated. But they only had to travel four and a half miles to their destination, and they had given themselves two hours to make sure they were well ahead of schedule. Once they arrived at the secluded clearing on a nearby hilltop, the rest of the setup wouldn't take long. They already had the necessary coordinates. Damon Roberts manned the wheel, negotiating the big rig through the twists and turns of the old logging road. Caleb Smith, who went by Smitty, rode shotgun, helping Damon navigate the winding road through the forest and pecking away on his laptop, checking and double-checking the coordinates they already had, communicating with the command center and watching for any low-hanging branches or other obstructions on the road. They were in the hills of eastern Tennessee, having headed to the small remote base in the foothills of the Appalachians directly after they left the site of the house bombings in suburban Virginia a few days earlier. Six semi-trucks with accompanying container trailers were housed at the same location, an abandoned staging barn for logging trucks and equipment. The logging company had ceased operations in the area 15 years earlier but an out-of-state company bought the land leases from the Southern Mountain Timber Company, and the new company had begun quietly upgrading the interior of the facilities with small skeleton crews whose comings and goings were hardly noticeable to the surrounding communities. Occasionally, neighboring farmers would see large trucks on the rural roads, but that was the extent of the locals' knowledge and such sightings were quickly forgotten in the rush to get the hay in for the season or the animals taken care of for the day. The mysterious company had leased over 20,000 acres of forestry land, with miles and miles of abandoned logging roads winding through the wooded hills. No trespassing signs had been posted at regular intervals along the borders of the property but the locals didn't pay much attention to the signs. Hunters still parked on the edge of the property and hiked into their favorite stands. Local high school kids still used the land for impromptu bonfires and underage parties off the grid of the local sheriff's deputies. But most of these activities occurred on the outer fringes of the forestry land. Few brave souls ventured very far into the surrounding woods and hills. Smitty looked up from the laptop and pointed to a hilltop in the distance. There's our destination, he said. Damon followed Smitty's stare and saw the clearing for himself, then quickly turned his eyes back to the wandering dirt road. We should arrive in plenty of time, he said. Any word from Danny and Big Scott or the other guys? Danny and Scott are already in place, and the others are getting close to their launch sites. In a few hours, we'll light up the sky like the 4th of July, Smitty said. 
Damon glanced into the twilight semi-darkness of the surrounding woods. Let's hope no one was around to see the show. With that, they lapsed back into silence, watching the road, negotiating the tight turns, and the rutted two-track as carefully as possible. They knew they were preparing to strike a blow at the heart of what had become of the United States federal government. They were enemies of the state, but with the power-mad state having set its sights on demoralizing or destroying over half the country's population with whom they disagreed politically, they were at least in good company. A junior analyst first made the connection between Grace and Wills and Beth Graves while going through Beth's high school transcripts. During Beth's junior year in high school, the school counselor had noted Beth's struggles in school, and Grace and Wills had been called in for a conference as her temporary guardian. The details of the conference were unavailable, but the details didn't matter. Only the name. She took the information to her manager, who had tasked her with researching Beth Graves. Her manager hadn't given her any reason for the research, but that wasn't all that odd. As a 26-year-old junior analyst, she was on a need-to-know basis, and most of the time, she didn't need to know. Her manager thanked her for her hard work and forwarded the information up the chain himself. That was the last thing the junior analyst heard of Beth Graves until her name surfaced again in connection with the domestic terror attacks after the world had changed. The FBI field office in Detroit put out an all-points bulletin for Grace and Wills to law enforcement across the state of Michigan with specific instructions not to engage with the suspect, but only report any known whereabouts. The FBI would take it from there. Within two hours, FBI agents had visited and subsequently tossed Gray's cabin. But other than determining that he had left fairly recently, they gleaned nothing of any real significance. They had already scanned his military files. If Grayson Wills didn't want to be found, he had the skills to evade detection for a long time. The special agent in charge of the Detroit field office stared at Grayson Wills' picture on his laptop and took the measure of his quarry, but he was no more in the loop than any of his agents. He only knew this request had come from the top, and he would give it the proper priority. But then his mind wandered, and soon he was deep in the weeds of another case, this one yet another God-fearing, MAGA-wearing, white, homegrown terrorist the kind popping up everywhere in the heartland of late. Megan Steiner flipped on the TV to watch the latest in a new line of unelected presidents installed by the deep state give her first primetime address to the nation. A little over a week had passed since Trump's plane had exploded in the dark sky over Alabama following his last rally. The shock had begun to wear off but the sadness felt impossibly heavy in her chest every morning when she woke from her fitful sleep for the day. Not unlike millions of other Trump supporters across the country, a dark well of hopelessness threatened to overwhelm her. Her president, the champion of the working and middle class, was gone. And in a very real sense, 
her country that she had loved since she was a child was gone as well. How could America ever come back from this? In only a week, it had become nearly an article of faith in flyover mega country that Trump had somehow been taken out by the deep state. Only a month before the explosion, Trump's plane had gone through a thorough inspection by the FAA and was given a clean bill of mechanical health. The timing was beyond suspicious. The talking heads on Fox News were again going over the whirlwind of events from just the past week, which had shaken an already shaken nation to its core. The FBI today, along with the FAA, released their preliminary findings on the explosion that destroyed former President Trump's Jumbo 757, killing all on board. It's believed there was a fuel leak from a cracked fuel line which ignited shortly after takeoff. One of Fox's beautiful blonde news babes read the latest spin from the feds as the sentences rolled out onto the teleprompter mounted over the camera. Steve, do you think this latest preview of the investigation into the crash will quiet the chatter percolating among Trump supporters about a deep state conspiracy to assassinate the former president? She asked the tanned, middle-aged man sharing the studio desk with her. In a word, Rhonda, no. He turned his eyes from the blonde next to him to the camera, and his eyes narrowed in deadly seriousness. After what we have witnessed from the deep state over the last almost 10 years, the relentless attacks on Donald Trump from liberal bureaucrats and elites at every level, it's hard to imagine what any government agency could reveal to put his supporters' suspicions and fears to rest, but especially the corrupt FBI, the enforcement arm of the left. The blonde news babe put her right hand to her ear and paused a moment. Sorry, Steve. We're getting word the new president will be going live any minute. The first female and Hispanic president of the United States of America, Maria Cortez, will address the nation for her first time as president from the Oval Office. We now go live to the White House. Whatever else Megan thought of the latest installment as president, Maria Cortez was a strong, beautiful woman. There was none of the Kamala Harris shiftiness about her. She seemed, at least, to be a true believer as opposed to an empty brown pantsuit. Before she spoke her first words, she seemed to bring an intelligence and seriousness to her new role, utterly lacking in her predecessor, the corpse, Joe Biden. My fellow Americans, she began, looking directly into the camera, unflinching. I come to serve you in a time of great unrest and mistrust in our nation. Lincoln said a nation divided against itself cannot long stand, and America is more divided today than at any time since the Civil War. Megan sipped her tea and tried to calm herself. She wanted to throw her coffee cup at the TV, but she fought to maintain her composure. She was, after all, alone in her home. Her daughter, Lily, was at a friend's working on a school project, and her son, Noah, was at his latest girlfriend's home working on whatever 17-year-olds in high school worked on these days. Probably some version of the horizontal shuffle, but Megan preferred not to think about the sexual exploits of her oldest son. Ever since his father had left four years earlier, 
Noah had found solace in the arms of a variety of girls, and Megan felt powerless in the face of his teenage rebellion. So she held her tongue, mostly, and tried to salvage what she could of her relationship with her son while he weathered what she hoped would be the worst of his teenage years. Meanwhile, the latest leader of the free world continued speaking on the screen. In times of peace and prosperity, we may disagree with our fellow citizens, especially those on the other side of the aisle. But in times like these, when America is under attack, we must link arms and face a common enemy as a united front. We must put aside our political differences and fight together as one nation. Maria Cortez paused and looked hard at the camera. There were hard truths the American people must face, and she straightened her back and steeled her spine for the next words. But as we face a new enemy, America is not united, but fractured. Many, in fact, rally to the other side, preferring anger and violence to compromise and sound government. So tonight, I'm asking you to leave the radical right-wing ideologies behind, leave the violence behind, and embrace a shared vision of love and tolerance, a uniquely American pursuit of peace and security for all. Megan rolled her eyes. President Cortez was laying it on thick, as expected. There remains a large segment of our population that is disgruntled and angry. They look to conspiracies rather than truth. They prefer violence to cooperation. And they want no part in the new world order of diversity and inclusion we seek to build. They hold tightly to their guns and Bibles and call for war against their own government. On January 6, 2020, they refused to engage in the peaceful transfer of power and instead chose armed insurrection. Megan seethed inside. The lies never stopped. From the moment the gates at the Capitol had been moved aside by the Capitol Police and the supporters of then-President Trump were ushered into the building, the vast majority walking peacefully between the ropes, gazing at their august surroundings and taking selfies in the rotunda, the leftists and the media had begun smearing them as insurrectionists. It was a coordinated, manufactured fabrication from the beginning, the setup for the great patriot purge that followed. The new president continued, In the wake of this attack on the very fabric of our democracy, the great law enforcement officers of the FBI and our nation's intelligence agencies have responded with patriotism and professionalism, rounding up the insurrectionists from every corner of the country where they hid and bringing them to justice. We will not be a country governed by the whims of a mob. We are a nation of laws, not lawbreakers, a country of engaged citizens, not enraged rioters. While the accident that took Donald Trump's life is tragic, the actions he took to spread the big lie and foment violence against the very foundations of our democracy were reprehensible, and his supporters' continuing rage against the government will no longer be tolerated. Megan frowned mid-sip of her tea. She began talking back to the TV. Is locking up innocent Trump supporters, parents and grandparents, 
raiding their peaceful homes in the middle of the night? Is that what you mean by tolerating us? What about freedom of speech? There's an archaic idea in the land of COVID and leftist tyranny. But Maria Cortez couldn't hear Megan or any of the rest of the nearly 60% of the population yelling at her through their televisions. A collection of attacks, bombings, and assassinations have occurred in the last week, which our best intelligence indicates was planned and perpetrated by loosely coordinated resistance groups connected by their support for former President Donald Trump. It's time to call these people what they are, homegrown mega-terrorists, even more dangerous to our democracy than Al-Qaeda, because their treasonous poison has infiltrated vast swaths of the American heartland. Megan's eyes went wide with shock. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. Had the new president of the United States really just labeled half the country mega-terrorists? More dangerous than Al-Qaeda? Staring at her TV, she felt like she was trapped in an episode of The Twilight Zone. Just a few days ago, these American homegrown terrorists blew up homes and buildings, killed a leader in the technology field and the former Speaker of the House in cold blood, and coordinated the abduction and kidnapping of almost 50 federal prosecutors and judges, all connected with the trials for the January 6th insurrectionists. Maria Cortez held the attention of the entire country with her words. Though she was the first woman to hold the office of President of the United States, she was not weak. Hers would be an iron fist. Tonight, in my first act as President of the United States of America, I am declaring a state of national emergency. We will hunt down those guilty of these acts of terror and bring them to justice. The full weight and force of the government of the United States will stop at nothing to find our brave public servants and bring them home. We will leave no stone unturned. All those providing financial or material support of any sort to our enemies will be treated like the traitors they are and all appropriate actions under the law will be taken. Maria Cortez paused again. She had shown her steel. Now it was time for a final appeal to unity and patriotism. As Americans, we cannot give any quarter to acts of insurrection or treason. We must stand together and face down the tyranny of our time. We must eradicate it tear it out root and branch, and restore peace and goodwill across this great country. Stand with us, and we will prevail whatever the cost. Thank you, America, for your faith and confidence. I will do my best to lead with strength and integrity as we traverse these treacherous times. May God bless America and be with us all. Good night. Megan sat in stunned silence, trying to decipher what she had just witnessed. Had the newest unelected president of the United States just declared war on half the country? Tears formed in her eyes. Inside, she seethed with fear and anger. She had thought with the assassination of Trump, things couldn't get any worse in the land of the free and the home of the brave. But she was wrong about that. More wrong than she could ever have imagined. A state of emergency, Gray said. 
watching the new president surrounded by all the trappings of the Oval Office fade to black. Replaced by the Fox News studio and Ronda the Blonde back again with tanned Steve to break down Maria Cortez's speech and what it meant for the country. Of course she's declaring a state of emergency. The government can do whatever the hell they want under a state of emergency. They were in a dive bar just off Highway 41, nearly an hour and a half away from the cabin where they were staying outside Barriga. Beth desperately wanted to get out of the cabin and see people, order a burger and a beer, and feel like a normal person for a few hours. Gray was dead set against the idea, but Beth had started working on him early in the afternoon while they were sitting in the metal lawn chairs on the 8x8 deck outside their cabin, enjoying the fall sunshine and watching squirrels scamper through the branches and birds peck and sing and flit from tree to tree. Peak color had already passed this far north, but the trees still held half their leaves or more. The next storm to blow through would likely take care of those, and before long, snow would be in the air. You know, I'm not a prisoner, Beth had said to Gray between sips of a lighter, local craft beer and puffs on her vape pen. Gray looked at her sideways, smoking one of the cigars he had packed. When he exhaled, a thick cloud of smoke swirled around the air over the deck before it disappeared, blown away by the cool autumn breeze. That's what we're trying to prevent. Because if the feds ever get their hands on you, you will be. If they don't just execute us on sight, he replied. Beth's eyes got wide. Execute us? What the hell, Gray? I didn't even do anything. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's all it takes to make you an enemy of the state. Beth took another sip of her beer, then sighed. The glint of moisture welled in her eyes. Gray sighed himself and patted her knee. I'm sorry, Beth. You don't deserve any of this. I wish I could tell you it's all going to be okay, but... I just don't know anymore. Beth sniffed hard and fought back the tears, only wiping them from her right eye. I can put my hair up in a ponytail with a hat and wear my glasses. I'll fit right in with all the cute redneck Uber girls. She pulled her hair up in one hand and smiled at him, batting her eyes. Gray just laughed and took another long draw on his cigar, savoring the smoke's earthy flavor before he exhaled again. If we go get something to eat somewhere, it's going to be a drive. I want to be an hour and a half from here at least, outside of any 60-mile perimeter. Beth looked at him confused, and Gray explained further. In case things go south, maybe some local deputy spots us and remembers a picture he's seen on an FBI bulletin. What are the chances of that? Beth asked. Gray took a drink of his own beer before answering. A fat fox squirrel ran past with a half-eaten corn cob in its mouth. There's no telling, but we only have to be wrong once. Beth rose from her chair. Then let's go for a ride. I'm up for a drive. I'll go get ready. And with that, she disappeared inside the cabin. The wooden screen door banged closed behind her. Gray looked back out at the partially clothed trees on the edge of the woods and shook his head. Just like her mother sometimes, he said to the squirrel who had stopped a few yards away. But the squirrel was too busy munching on his latest treasure to reply. So a few hours later, here they were, tucked in a corner booth of an out-of-the-way restaurant bar a few blocks off the highway. 
It wasn't even a town, per se. Just four corners in the middle of nowhere with a blinking yellow caution light, to which no one paid much attention. It was a typical weekday evening in the off-season at Randy's place. One waitress took care of four or five tables of patrons chasing meat pasties with Miller lights. Another six customers were parked at the bar. The TV was turned up for the new president's speech, punctuated by boos and curses throughout the establishment whenever the new Miss President mentioned MAGA or homegrown terrorists. One older gentleman with a long, unkempt powder-white beard yelled from a booth on the opposite side of the restaurant, Get that Mexican bitch off the television! To scattered applause and agreement. If there were any liberals in the vicinity, they weren't dining at Randy's that evening. The bell over the door at the main entrance chimed, and everyone in the restaurant turned to see who was joining them. A clean-cut man in his early thirties walked in, nodded, and smiled at the waitress. Hey, Tammy, he said. Hey yourself, Ryan, she answered, smiling back. Papa squat wherever. It's a typical weeknight. How's your mom holding up? Ryan sat down at a table by one of the front windows, three or four tables away from Grand Beth. Gray's eyes narrowed and his smile faded as he watched the restaurant's latest customer situate himself at the table. Beth had turned to look at the man when he entered, but only for a moment. Then her attention turned back to Gray and the Miller light in her hand. What's wrong? she asked as a shadow fell over Gray's eyes. Our friend who just walked in is a cop. Off duty, apparently, Gray answered quietly. Are you sure? Beth asked, hazarding another glance over her shoulder at the man. I'm sure, Gray replied. When you've been in the business as long as I have, cops are the easiest people in the world to make. Just keep your head down. At least you're not facing him. Maybe we'll get lucky and the feds haven't put out a bulletin for me yet. Tammy, the waitress, came over to check on them. Gray ordered another beer, but Beth wasn't ready for another one yet. They had ordered food 20 minutes earlier, but it hadn't arrived at their table yet. Beth watched Gray over her beer. What should we do? Gray laughed and picked up his own beer. Just be normal. Enjoy some drinks. Let's hope the food is decent. Beth was confused. She glanced over her shoulder again at the man Tammy had called Ryan sitting at his table, looking down at the menu. Her eyes found Gray's again. He saw her fear edging into panic. Let's go outside and have a smoke, he said. Then he put drink napkins on top of their beer glasses and rose from his chair. We should do it now, before our food comes. Beth didn't smoke cigarettes, and neither did Gray but she followed his lead anyway. The waitress passed them as they were heading for the door. We're just grabbing a quick smoke, Gray told her. Waitress Tammy smiled. You don't need my permission, honey. On the way out the door, they passed the off-duty cop's table, and Gray smiled and nodded in greeting. The man nodded back, but showed no special interest in either one of them. Then they were outside, and Gray headed for the Jeep. He came back with a pack of Marlboro Red's special selects picked up some new bad habits in your old age? Beth asked. Gray retrieved a cigarette out of the pack and pulled a lighter from his pocket. I find it's best to live up to your cover. If you say you're going outside to smoke a cigarette, you damn well better find a cigarette to smoke. Listen, you need to chill out, Chica. The absolute worst thing you can do is freak the hell out and start acting all fidgety and suspicious. Beth was defensive. 
I was being normal. What are you talking about? Gray just looked at her over his cupped hands, lighting his cigarette. He got it lit, took a drag, and blew it out into the chilly evening air. Just be cool. If you act nervous, you'll only make him suspicious. Cops catch that vibe every day for a living. They can feel it when someone is getting nervy on them. Beth wanted to say she wasn't, but there was no point. Gray knew her too well, especially when she was operating in his wheelhouse. Instead, she held out her hand for the cigarette. Gray handed it over. I see our young lady has experimented with some new bad habits of her own. Beth took a long hit off the cancer stick and handed it back. Only when I'm drinking. And only once in a while, even then. I don't really like cigarettes, but it's a nice head buzz. So what's the plan, Jason Bourne? We relax, enjoy our dinner, have a few more beers, then hit the road. With any luck, Ryan, the county mountie, in there won't give us another thought. And if he does? Gray put the smoke back to his lips and took another long drag. If he was going to do it, might as well do it upright. He looked up at the waning moon and the stars just coming into view. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's go eat some food. With that, he crushed out the butt into the sand can, and they headed back inside to the beers and bar food and normal people Beth had missed while she had been on the run. Beth found herself drinking faster to put the off-duty cop and all he could mean for her out of her mind. And Gray was glad she did. For his part, he didn't put Ryan out of his mind for one second. He could have given a detailed debrief of every drink Officer Ryan drank and every bite of food he took, every place the man's eyes went in the restaurant and how long they rested there. And it was only ten minutes later, soon after their food arrived, that Gray Wills knew the cop had made them. But the beer was cold and the food wasn't bad, and he would wait to get excited until the excitement actually began. Ryan Nehan was actually a Michigan State trooper, but he was off duty, and he had been at his table nearly 20 minutes before he finally recognized the stranger at the table with a young girl. He wasn't sure, so he had brought up the FBI bulletin in his email on his phone, and on second glance, the man at the table in the corner was more than likely Grayson Wills. But the bulletin made clear no official contact with Grayson Wills and the young woman with him, Beth Graves, was to be attempted. Ryan's job was simply to notify the FBI of any sightings or coincidental contact and provide them any accompanying information, such as location, license plate numbers, description of their appearance. Ryan glanced around the bar slowly, just people watching while he waited for his food. His eyes passed over Grayson Wills and Beth Graves, smiling, laughing, enjoying their food and drinks. He didn't let his eyes linger. He knew better than that. But he found himself wondering about the bulletin from the FBI. About what exactly the FBI wanted with the two friendly enough-looking people eating at Randy's place in the middle of nowhere in the UP. The FBI hadn't earned a wealth of trust from local police over the last eight years. In fact, the agency had largely pissed away whatever professional goodwill had existed with their frenzied witch hunt of Donald Trump and many of his supporters. The FBI had fabricated a faux kidnapping of Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, concocting a plot only the most deluded and psychotic of participants would ever go along with. 
The whole thing strained credulity to all but the federal judge and jury who made sure to grant the feds as many hayseed hick scalps and red MAGA hats as possible. Maybe he should just leave it alone. Forget he saw the two at Randy's place and let the feds chase their own loose ends through the dense pine forest of the UP. He was sure the G-men would have wonderful success with the Upers. Ryan smiled as he thought about the feds in their fancy blue jackets hiking through the snowy wilderness. But as he finished up the last of his dinner, and Grace and Wills and Beth Graves rose to leave, Ryan pulled out his wallet and checked for cash. Grace and Wills nodded and smiled as the two passed him and headed out the door. As soon as the door closed behind them, Ryan rose and put on his jacket. He left 25 bucks on the table and waved at the waitress across the bar. I gotta run, Tammy. Money's on the table. Take care, Tammy called. Beth and Gray were just pulling out as Ryan Nehan opened the door to leave. He watched the Jeep turn east, but he wasn't close enough to get the plate. Ryan had no reason to put much effort into helping the FBI, but he was curious just the same. He got in his pickup, started the ignition, and instead of heading west toward home, he turned the wheel east and set his sights on the taillights in the distance. When he called in the sighting tomorrow, maybe he'd have the location where they were staying and the feds would pat him on the head like the good little state boy he was. Gray watched the rearview mirror closely as they left. He had seen the cop leave the restaurant right behind them, and a minute later he saw headlights swing out of the parking lot to follow them. Gray shook his head and sighed. Bad decision, compadre. What's wrong? Beth asked, looking behind them at the taillights in the distance. Our off-duty cop friend just turned in behind us. Beth turned her eyes back to the road in front of them. What do we do now? Gray glanced up in the rear view again. The headlights were still there, but no closer. Now we drive for a while and see what happens. Maybe he'll pull off in a few miles, he said, knowing even as he said it, Ryan the cop would not turn off. The off-duty cop had made them, and now he was following them. Gray looked down at the gas gauge. The Jeep's tank was nearly full. Gray had stopped and filled up 15 miles before Randy's for just such an occasion. Get comfortable. We may be on the road a while. With that, Gray turned up the radio, and Blake Shelton serenaded them as they headed east. Two sets of lights separated by a quarter mile of highway, chasing the road into the night. America's latest president, Maria Cortez, occupied the large center screen in the command center while she addressed the nation for the first time from the Oval Office. The mood in the massive underground base of command for Group Alamo remained somber throughout the speech. Not only did everyone in Group Alamo consider Joe Biden's replacement to be just one more unelected deep state stooge to occupy the most powerful position in the world, but they also knew what was coming later that night, if not the particulars, at least the general idea. They were on the cusp of executing the largest attack on America's homeland in history, and none of them took that knowledge lightly. Everyone involved at every level in Group Alamo had always hoped it would never come to this. Even as red lines were crossed with increasing frequency, to a one they hoped the final Hail Mary their group represented 
would never have to be called. But now the time for duty had come. In a very real sense for most of America, this night would mark the beginning of the insurrection, the official beginning of the war between the American people and the American globalist empire. All the other screens in the command center showed satellite feeds of various targets around the country in addition to several rural staging areas where semi-trucks were setting up for their launches. In the center of the Glaston Command Center, a large translucent holographic map of the entire continental United States came to life lit up with multiple green and red dots. Why are the green lights all concentrated in the middle of the country, while the red dots are scattered along the east and west coasts, Jake asked. Max had begun working on a laptop, but he looked up long enough to answer. The green dots represent launch sites. The red dots represent targets. Why are there so many more targets? Each launch site has multiple trucks launching from various areas in the same general vicinity, Max said. His eyes had moved back to his laptop where he was pecking away on the keyboard. Eli noticed Jake still seemed confused. Then Jake asked the next obvious question. What are you launching? Cruise missiles, Eli said. Jake stared back at Eli in shock. Cruise missiles? Where the hell did you get cruise missiles from? Eli scanned the screens, watching the individual trucks and special forces teams come into position and prepare for launch. We've been arming and stockpiling weapons for almost four decades, preparing for a war we hoped would never come, he said. How many cruise missiles do you have? Jake asked, still trying to wrap his head around just how massive and well-armed Group Alamo actually was. Eli walked over to Max and glanced over his friend's shoulder at whatever the laptop displayed while he responded. Tonight we are launching 160 missiles from 40 trucks in different locations around the country. But we have a lot more cruise missiles in inventory than that. I can't remember the exact number. Thousands. Jake could hardly process what he was hearing and seeing all around him. All bought and paid for by the very government you're preparing to attack, he said. Max looked up from the laptop again and smiled. God bless America. At least we have something to show for $31 trillion in debt, Eli added. Max, were you able to hack into the target sites and set off the fire alarms? Some, Max said. Not all. We're still trying. Why are you setting off fire alarms? Won't that alert the targets something is going on? Jake asked. The goal is to get any cleaning crews or stray civilians out of the buildings if possible. There will be collateral damage and innocent lives lost, but we do what we can to limit it, Eli said. He moved to the holographic map in the middle of the room. The targets are all identified, he asked. Max nodded. The teams have all the coordinates. How long till they're in position? Most are already in position. A couple of the teams ran into washouts on the logging roads, but they should all be ready by 2200. About the time Madam President is done accusing the American people of being terrorists. The launch is scheduled for 2300. Eli nodded this time. Good. Former Congresswoman Cortez is about to get an up-close and personal look at what terrorism is all about. We're about to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. Jake walked up and stood next to Eli. 
He stared at all the red dots lining both coasts. He felt terribly conflicted. He thought he had some idea of what insurrection and civil war might mean for his country. But that was before he met Eli. Now that he saw it arrayed before him on maps and screens, he felt sick. Is this what it will take to actually win? he asked. Eli put a hand on Jake's shoulder and sighed. Unfortunately, my new friend, the very fact that we're standing here means America is already lost. We're just trying to drive the conquering hordes from the halls of power so we can pick up the pieces and begin again. This time it was Jake that sighed. So much for Ronald Reagan's shining city on a hill, he said. So much indeed, Eli replied. They lapsed into silence after that, lost in their own thoughts. A hushed anticipation fell over the command center, the inevitable calm before the storm. As they watched the screens and waited for the show to begin, and the world, as they'd always known it, to end. The coordinates were set. The cruise missiles were pointed at the sky and ready for launch. All they awaited was the final launch order from command. Damon leaned against the front of the transport truck and stared up at the night sky. It was a beautiful night, clear and cold. The stars shone brilliantly in the Appalachian foothills. Smitty had just finished a final check on the guidance systems, and he walked around the front of the truck and tilted his head up to the sky to join Damon in his stargazing. Sure is a pretty night to start a war, Smitty said. An insurrection, Damon corrected him. Feels an awful lot like war to me, Smitty said. I remember this in Afghanistan, on the eve of a major strike or operation, the overwhelming sense of calm and quiet before it starts. Damon didn't turn to his friend when he spoke. His eyes remained on the stars, staring down at them from light years away. It was the same in Iraq, like the world is taking a deep breath before the dive into chaos and confusion. Then the satellite phone broke the silence of the moment, and Damon looked at his watch. Five minutes to 2300. He answered, listened briefly, then hung up and put the phone back in his vest pocket. Orders to launch at 2300 on the dot. Smitty turned his face from the stars and nodded at Damon. 2300. Let's rock and roll. They grabbed the laptop in their packs and moved to an area a hundred yards away next to the tree line, just in case one of the birds decided to detonate on the truck. Damon watched the digital display on his watch and waited. When the digital numbers read 2300, he said, let them fly. Smitty punched the code on the laptop and hit the launch button. The first of the missile hatches opened, and the top of the truck-mounted launcher burst into bright orange flame right before a Tomahawk missile rose out of the flames. It shot straight up, leveled out in something that almost looked like a bounce in midair. Then the missile shot off to the east. Fifteen seconds later, the second Tomahawk missile repeated the trick. Within two minutes, all four of the missiles were on their way east, leaving thick white smoke trails in their wake. Damon sent a text on his phone. The birds are in the air. And then Damon and Smitty jogged back to the truck and began preparations to leave the area as quickly as they could. They had kicked the hornet's nest, and now they needed to get back on the trail and into the barn before the hornets started circling. Nearly an hour later, 
close to midnight, the first of six Tomahawk cruise missiles struck the J. Edgar Hoover Building, FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Eight missiles struck the FBI complex in Quantico, Virginia. FBI headquarters in New York City, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco were also destroyed in the attack. Several regional IRS complexes were hit along the east and west coasts. The headquarters of three of the largest defense contractors in the country suffered devastating strikes. While the Attorney General and the Director of Homeland Security were both killed along with their families when their homes were struck and destroyed. When the smoke finally cleared, the country woke up the following morning to over a hundred dead and many more injured. 160 Tomahawk cruise missiles had fallen out of the sky, raining death and destruction on government institutions and agencies up and down both coasts. The American insurrection had officially begun. <laughs>